historically we've put it into gray concrete channels and and hoped that they were large enough. And what we've seen in the last 50 years in Toronto is that that hasn't been the right solution. So what we try to put into practice through our work is an approach of green infrastructure and leveraging natural systems. It's a $1.4 billion investment in green generative infrastructure here on the waterfront, unlocking new lands for development, which will become sustainable neighborhoods in the future and also protecting existing residents here in Toronto against the effects of climate change going forward. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment. Here firsthand their experience build the future of our planet. This episode, I'm so excited to welcome Aaron Barter, Director of Innovation and Sustainability at Waterfront Toronto. Waterfront Toronto represents a massive transformation and regeneration program focused on a 2,000 acre site on the edge of Lake Ontario and mobilizes public resources to attract private investment and catalyze job creation. This tri-government investment into waterfront revitalization has led to more than $13.25 billion in private sector investment on the waterfront and represents a super exciting testbed for innovation across the built and natural environment. Before I pass over to Aaron, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's pass over to Aaron. Hi, my name is Aaron Barter, and I'm the Director of Innovation and Sustainability at Waterfront Toronto. Here, I focus on opportunities to bring new practices and techniques into our work on building sustainable neighborhoods. And I lead our efforts on climate change, sustainability, and ESG. Before joining Waterfront Toronto, I worked with startups at Mars Discovery District, an innovation center here in Toronto. And my background is in mechanical engineering and clean energy technologies. And I wanted to share a bit about the history, which I think sets the stage for the work that we're doing now as it relates to new neighborhoods. So like most cities, Toronto is located on a major body of water. For us, that's Lake Ontario, one of Canada's Great Lakes. And throughout history, cities have always been at the intersection of transportation and trade routes where oceans, lakes, rivers have provided an important means of transport. And so this was instrumental to Toronto's history and, and really tease up the work that we do today. Long before Europeans came to the area, Toronto was home to Indigenous peoples who used this location as the start of a shortcut from the lower to the upper Great Lakes. And our area is part of the traditional territory of many First Nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. And Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. And during this time, the shoreline in Toronto looked very different than it does today. A uh, large river mouth, an estuary teeming with wildlife and natural wetland. And over the centuries since colonization, industry moved in, like in many cities around the world, and gradually replaced that natural wetland with factories, ports, shipping terminals, and warehouses. 
This continued up until the past half century or so, or so when truck traffic began to replace the boats and Toronto's waterfront became a neglected space. There were patchwork efforts to reclaim and revitalize the waterfront during the 1980s and 1990s, but without much success. Until the, the late 90s, when governments came together to support a bid for the 2008 Olympic Summer Games. And as the bid came together, these different levels of government, the City of Toronto, the Province of Ontario, and the Government of Canada, each pledged support to revitalize the waterfront and bring the games <clears throat> down to the shoreline. And when that effort was not successful, as I'm sure many of uh, your audience members will recall, they took place in Beijing, <laughs> there was still a consensus that a renewed effort was worthwhile and Waterfront Toronto was created out of that, that effort. So as a tri-government organization, we're independent and we work with governments to oversee and lead the revitalization of waterfront lands. And that has a real focus on creating housing, creating sustainable neighborhoods, and creating high quality public realm and outdoor space um, for visitors and residents of Toronto. You use the word sustainability a lot. And the key theme when it comes to sustainability at the minute, particularly in urban areas, and the built environment being resilience. Toronto, about 6.3 million people, which really is, is quite a few. What does, what does climate resilience mean to you and the work that you're doing? And how do you approach this? Yeah, the city has done some great work over the last few years on identifying those threats, hazards, shocks and stresses that climate change will have on the city of Toronto. And to name a few, we know that the number of extreme heat days is continuing to rise. We're already seeing that this summer, and uh, like across Europe, we saw unprecedented heat. And we also know that it involves a lot more rainfall and water. And we're, we're active on a few different fronts. So we're trying to design outdoor green spaces to better accommodate extreme heat. We're designing buildings to respond to that, try to use more passive techniques. But a lot of our work as of late has been focused on managing water. And as I'm sure others on the podcast have talked about, there's a, different approaches to managing the water that comes with climate change. Historically, we've put it into gray concrete channels and, and hoped that they were large enough. And what we've seen in the last 50 years in Toronto is that that hasn't been the right solution. So what we try to put into practice through our work is an approach of, of green infrastructure and leveraging natural systems to manage flood water. So for all of that work, it's, it's very much based on an event that took place in 1954 when a hurricane, Hurricane Hazel, swept through Toronto caused devastating flooding across the region and 81 people lost their lives and thousands were left homeless. It was a devastating event for the region. And as a result, we've, we've taken steps in different ways to, to mitigate that kind of damage in the future. And of course, with climate change, this type of event continues to become more common. So our work in the Portlands right now, former industrial port, is about converting the 
paved concrete hardscapes that have been put over our natural environment, converting those back to regenerated wetlands and to allow that water to fall in place, either be absorbed into the into the ground or if not to follow the path of the river out into the lake and in the process mitigate damage from flooding. And so our Portland's flood protection project is our marquee activity on this front right now and launched in 2017. It's a $1.4 billion investment in green generative infrastructure here on the waterfront. We're creating a new river mouth for the Don River. And this is unlocking new lands for development, which will become sustainable neighborhoods in the future, and also protecting existing residents here in Toronto against the effects of climate change going forward. It's a pretty amazing scale of development there. Over a billion dollars spent investing into the area. And I quite like the way you framed it from moving from gray solutions to green solutions. This is quite a prominent approach within the water sector at the moment. And we see this in the UK, really trying to move away from the first resort to any need being to put more concrete into the ground because it has such a limited timeline associated with it. And it really doesn't build any resilience into the natural infrastructure. This also naturally then reduces the, the carbon footprint of our built environment, which has, has many benefits as we know. I wanted to just sort of move on to the built environment. And I imagine with such a large transformation program, there's a balance to be found in terms of investing and developing new buildings, whilst also then trying to stay true to your sustainability priorities and, and, that, and that resilience points. What, what is your vision? Yeah, it's a great question because as we create these new landforms, new islands and promontories within the lake, a, a large part of that becomes new housing in particular. Looking at uh, over 10 million square feet of new housing to be built in the area over the next 25 years. And so how we do that becomes tremendously important uh, to your point. And so we have a, an outcomes-based approach in how we think about that. We engage development partners from the private sector and from nonprofits to work with us on the creation of this new housing and also new, new commercial spaces. And we have a, a policy that they will be zero carbon. And we actually want to find ways for our new neighborhoods to offset emissions elsewhere in the city of Toronto, whether that be through natural systems and plantings or through um, the export of clean energy. So we use our, our mechanisms to implement that and involve our development agreements that we hold with the private sector. Because we're developing on public land and because we're reaching above and beyond codes, our partners are required to meet or exceed those standards. If they don't, there are securities, financial penalties that could come into play. Although in the last 22 years, we've never had to draw upon those securities. And generally, we find that as we competitively procure our development partners, we do that based on their willingness and their capacity to deliver on greener buildings and sustainable neighborhoods. So we're actively looking for development partners to 
carry on our vision and bring it into the built environment through these new residential and commercial buildings that are going up in the area. I'll give you a flavor of some of our, our goals. So we have a metric of zero kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. So getting to net zero. We, however, take a, an approach that is agnostic to the means. And by that, I mean that some buildings might have a, an upgraded building envelope um, where they reach passive house levels of energy efficiency, but another building might opt for a different built form that uh, reduces the amount of mechanical heating and cooling required and uses a renewable energy system like rooftop solar or building integrated solar to offset their remaining consumption. And we think that by doing that, we can spur competition with vendors who are coming in with different offerings, different technologies and tools to reduce carbon in buildings. And we think that we can drive down the cost of getting to net zero, which is our broader goal within these projects. We're also now more focused than ever on upfront uh, carbon emissions and embodied carbon. So all new buildings are doing life cycle assessments and we have a goal of getting to a 40% reduction in upfront emissions. And again, the approach that we've taken is that this could be achieved through material substitution, such as timber for concrete or different mixes of concrete with supplementary cementous materials. Uh, but it could also be through different architectural decisions around structure or parking supply within the building. So keying in on the outcomes and not dictating how the building will get there. We have about 10 other metrics that deal with water efficiency, green space, uh, electric vehicle charging, cycling facilities, and more. Our goal generally is that as we're developing on public lands, and because we're working in this higher profile waterfront location within the city, we want to push the market. We want to lead the market and have the opportunity to demonstrate these green building practices and higher standards within this unique context, and then see those roll out more broadly across the region um, going forward. I wanted to give a quick example of this in practice. We recently announced our Keyside site, um, which is an eight acre, 3.3 million square foot project, roughly uh, five or six towers. And in this project, which is uh, majority residential, about 800 units of affordable housing and 3,000 market housing units. We've partnered with Dream Unlimited and Great Gulf, two prominent Canadian developers with a track record in green buildings and sustainability. And this site aspires to be Canada's largest zero carbon neighborhood. We undertook a procurement, again, competitively looking for the best partners who share our vision for sustainable neighborhoods and Dreaming Great Gulf uh, were successful, and we're now working with them on the implementation of the project uh, over the next five years. It's really great to hear that you take an outcomes-based approach rather than publishing requirements, because it really, as you say, encourages your partners and your suppliers to be a lot more innovative, to really put forward the best solution that ultimately aligns with your end vision. What sort of challenges does that bring across in terms of actually managing 
a program that might vary quite considerably depending on the level of innovation that your supply chain bring to you? Yeah, the, the greatest challenge that we've seen is around timing, where my background prior to this role was working with startups in, in the energy space and in carbon reductions. And startups move quickly and they need to pilot and demonstrate and find a market and begin growing their business all within a few years. And the reality of these large civil infrastructure and neighborhood scale projects is that they take a very long time and take a long time to get moving. And then even once you're in construction, there's, there's years between um, when you make a decision about a product or a spec and when that you know, becomes real. And that's a real incongruency. And, and it creates a lot of issues with the startup community and, and finding opportunities and on-ramps for them within the program. We've had some success. We've worked with, with young companies and Canadian entrepreneurs but we want to be more proactive and thoughtful about how we can bring those small and medium-sized enterprises into these large-scale projects like this. We think that that horizon is a, is a real challenge, but if we can be more thoughtful about the process through which they can be engaged, there could be more opportunities for them there. I'll note as well, we have had some experience with, with this tension as well, of course, Waterfront Toronto for several years was working closely with Sidewalk Labs, uh, an alphabet company, and we were identifying where there was opportunities to bring innovation, new technologies into the built environment and learn how they could be deployed in pursuit of these broader public goals, like reducing carbon and creating affordable housing. That project did not go forward. Uh, ended at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. But we were able to learn a lot about the process of bringing new ideas into this very long and uh, complex process of city building. And our team certainly came away with a, a lot of good ideas and, and learnings, for better or for worse, on how we can navigate the complexities of bringing technology into the space. So that was a good a good process and, and good for us to learn about how how it can be done. Thinking about Waterfront Toronto and the vision ahead of you and the key capabilities that you think are required to truly deliver a successful transformation, if you think about a, almost a bit of a Venn diagram of capabilities, what would you say that Venn diagram looks like for Waterfront Toronto and what you're wanting to achieve? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a few that come to mind right off the bat. One is clarity of purpose and, and knowing that the people on your team understand the big picture goals that you're working towards. In our case, sustainable neighborhoods, housing, creating public space, and, and others. I think reinforcing that with your team and ensuring that there's alignment between different groups and departments is, is really important. The second I would say is public engagement and an ongoing dialogue with the communities in which you're undertaking your work. For us, engagement with uh, the Indigenous community, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, as, as well as other Indigenous communities in the region, our local uh, residents, many of whom have been involved in revitalization of the waterfront for, for many years, 
and an active dialogue with them to ensure that as we're putting our plans together, that they align with the expectations of, of different communities and, and stakeholder groups. Um, and lastly, I would say that we, we need to keep our eye on, on the state of the art right now because things are changing very quickly. And as we think about green buildings or uh, natural systems and, and design, urban design, there's so much work underway, both within um, startup, the startup community, within academia, uh, and within industry, that bringing the best and newest ideas into our work is really important. And keeping our ear to the ground and making sure we understand what those best practices are is is very important and something that that can happen with us with a dedicated team such as my own uh, innovation group. Um, but I think also important within different departments and teams to really pay attention to those trends and ensure that we're weaving them into our, our work uh, on an ongoing basis. Just picking up on that point around innovation and the future thinking, hearing a lot of the innovation that you've described, it sounds very physical. It sounds like green buildings, improving natural resilience in our local ecology, et cetera. What role would you say technology plays and data in delivering this end vision? I think while there is an important role for emerging technology and data-based systems, there's, there are also some fundamentals that we need to get right before we begin and before we engage on, on those additive digital technologies. I think many of the solutions that cities need are known and in fact have have been known for a long time and yet still don't get used nearly enough and the bicycle is probably my favorite one where we can think about many different ways to move people through a city but it's really hard to beat a bicycle which has existed for 100 years or even an electric bicycle which are becoming more popular to move people from point a to point b and and so it's not to say that there aren't opportunities for new micromobility and new solutions that can better integrate routing of cars. And, you know, that's all very nice. But I think there are some fundamentals that we need to get right. And on top of that, then there could be these opportunities to, to bring more digital and data-based technologies into the fold. I think that's a completely fair position. We see often... A lot of similar projects getting sucked into the exciting emerging tech. And I obviously am a big advocate for new emerging technologies myself. However, it is so important to get the foundations right and focus on the core principles, which then allow you to have the right type of focus in terms of where you can then capture additional efficiencies through emerging tech capabilities. Mm -hmm. That's right. If we think about what makes somebody's day really special and, and builds a high quality urban a high quality urban life certainly those those new ideas about how the systems they interface with are integrated think about home energy management systems and uh, sustainability and kind of demand response or different technologies around energy as one or of course transportation systems and integrating your rideshare app with your micromobility tools that's all great but probably what gives them the most satisfaction will be the green spaces they encounter 
you know, good, high quality public realm, short commutes. So 15 minute neighborhoods, ease of access to amenities, whether that's the swimming pool or the community center or the shops. I think those are the things that really stand out in somebody's day and creates that high quality of life. And then there is definitely an opportunity to build on that and create other seamless digital interactions for them to have. But it's certainly not an either or. And I would argue that it needs to start with some of those foundational components. And I think there's also a difference. And you have an audience that comes from both North America and Europe and the UK. And I think here in North America, some of those things we haven't figured out yet. There are there are many, many cities and, and parts of cities that are much more dependent on the car, much less walkable, have have other challenges related to the urban form. And I think those are really worth tackling much in you know the North American context. Whereas our friends over in Europe and the UK have figured out some of those more fundamental aspects of, of city life. Aaron, one last question. What's your vision for the future when it comes to sustainable cities? Yeah, big one. And and really important because when we chart our course here at Waterfront Toronto and we work with our community groups and, and governments to put that plan together, we're looking out 20, 30 years all the time, thinking about what these spaces and these neighborhoods will look like in 2045 and 2050. And that vision for us takes a few forms. And I'll touch on where they intersect with sustainability. The first is that our buildings are going to be under new shocks and stresses in 30 years than we face to date. Climate will be much more challenging by 2050. We know that. And so we want our built environment to be resilient against the pressures that climate change will bring and allow people to not only survive, but thrive within these new urban environments that uh, we're creating here on the waterfront. The second is that our transportation systems will change. The, we know that car ownership is declining in Toronto. We believe that will continue to be the case. And our modes of non-car transportation will also evolve. And so we have a vision where People are uh, near to their place of work, near to their amenities, and they have access to affordable housing options within a complete community. And largely, we subscribe to the idea that 15-minute neighborhoods are a big part of creating high-quality urban uh, neighborhoods. And lastly, I believe that we'll see a greater return to nature within our cities. We've joked about this during the pandemic where you know nature is healing but i do think that we're seeing more green coming to cities uh transformation of paved surfaces into more permeable and green surfaces which will both help to mitigate uh urban heat island effect in, you know in a changing climate and will bring better flood protection to cities and it will also help people which is i guess what it's all about and we believe that the benefits that nature brings to mental health and physical health are, are very important. So I hope that our vision certainly is that in the future we'll have better integration of nature into cities 
so that people have access to high quality green spaces and can spend time outside and enjoy nature without leaving the city. Brilliant. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having us and certainly happy to engage with any of your audience members if they'd like to learn more about Waterfront Toronto and, and all of our work here along Lake Ontario shoreline. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.